0: Well, good morning to you all uh, again. you feel like I was just up here a couple weeks ago because I was, and uh, it's sweet to see you all again. Uh, thankful for the opportunity, as always, to fill the pulpit, and that's just not filler language. It is a privilege and a joy in this particular body because you, you're so eager. You're so eager to hear the Word of God. You have such a high regard uh, for the Word of God and an eagerness to live it out and believe it. So, in many ways, this congregation is easy to preach to. And we're going to look at a passage this morning that deals with God's servants and human scrutiny. And I'm going to do something a little out of order uh, this morning, at least the way that we would typically do it in preaching. Normally, you preach the passage and then give an illustration to illustrate the passage. I'm first going to do the illustration. Uh, And I think you'll see why it uh, hopefully works as we go through it here. It's an illustration that I got from uh, Pastor Alistair Begg, and he recounted the story of a well-known folktale in Wales. And the legend involves a wolfhound named Gellert, owned by Llewellyn the Great, the Prince of Wales in the 13th century. And the prince goes out hunting one day, leaving his infant son, sleeping peacefully in his cradle. You automatically know it's a prince and not a mother that would do that. Only a prince would leave his son there with, a, with Gellert, his dog, watching over the son. His faithful, loyal, beloved dog was there to protect his son from any danger, so he went hunting. Upon returning from hunting, there was Gellert, uh, excited and eager to meet the prince, but immediately the prince noticed something was terribly wrong as there was blood on Gellert's body including a blood-smeared mouth. And the prince was greatly alarmed and immediately rushed to the room of his infant son, only to find the child missing, the cradle overturned, blood on the linen, and all over the floor. The prince, in his terror and shock, draws the immediate conclusion that Gellert was responsible. He pulls his sword out and drives it into his beloved dog, Gellert. Immediately after the dog's last dying yelp, Llewellyn hears the cries of the baby unharmed under the cradle along with a dead wolf. Rather than harming the child, as the prince had suspected, Gellert had defended the child and killed the wolf. Llewellyn is overcome with remorse and buries the dog with great ceremony but can still hear its dying yelp in his mind. After that day, Llewellyn is said to have never smiled again. Now, you might be asking, why are you beginning with such a depressing illustration like that? Well, I begin that way because it illustrates for us the danger and also the tendency that we have in the church to draw hasty, premature, flawed conclusions. In fact, human beings are very good at at evaluating a circumstance, thinking they have comprehensive knowledge of all the facts, and then drawing unwarranted conclusions. One reason we're very skilled at this is because we've been practicing it since Adam and Eve. In fact, they were the first to draw a catastrophic conclusion based on a false assumption. They were told that they could freely eat from the tree tree, in the garden except one, and with the aid of the serpent, what assessment did they make about God based on that one prohibition? Well, God's holding out on us. There must be a sinister motive in God. He's keeping us back from something that's good for us. And as, as you know, the rest of the story, based on believing that lie, that false assumption it plunged humanity into the fall. So it's as old as the garden, and as believers today, we're not immune to this tendency. Think about a few examples. One would be in your parenting. Have you ever drawn a premature, hasty conclusion that ended up not being accurate? You were confident in the moment, you're guilty. But then, as time went on, some more details came out, and you realized, oh, you're the one that's guilty. Think about in your marriage how much needless trouble we bring into our marriages because we make assessments about our spouses, oftentimes including their motives, the intentions of their heart, and then we draw unwarranted conclusion based on those assessments and treat them according to that. Relationships, friends, family, the body of Christ, how quick we are to make an assessment based on our perception of something, conclusions that we've drawn from just a couple of observations that we've made with such limited information to make those judgments. And the same goes for evaluating leaders in the church. And that's the primary theme that we're going to look at this morning. Look at 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 5. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 5. So Paul writes to the church in Corinth. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I'm not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. In this passage, Paul details the relationship between God's servants and human scrutiny, human assessments. And I, I feel obligated to begin just by stating it's kind of an awkward theme for any pastor to stand behind a pulpit and preach on, because the application of it has to do with how the congregation views its leaders, and it can feel incredibly self-serving in that regard. But you have noticed throughout throughout the scriptures, there's a lot of passages about on your relationship with leaders, how to think about them and how to, how to encourage them in those things. So we can't ignore all of those passages. And regardless of that factor, I thought this would be a fitting time in our ministry to narrow in and look at this particular theme in this passage. And I have a few reasons for that. First of all, no church is immune to the Corinthian tendency. The Corinthian tendency to view the Christian life, to view the church, to view leaders through the lens of human opinion and human wisdom. Now, with that said, I didn't choose the passage because I think we have a huge problem with that here. I would look at this more as preventative maintenance going forward. But that leads to a second reason why this is a good time to be in this passage, and that is because of the season of ministry that we find ourselves in. This once small church plant consisting of a dozen families or so is now a multi-service Sunday ministry with a multi-member pastoral staff. Four men who are freed up by the church to devote themselves entirely to the work of pastoring. That's why we call them pastors. We also have four men who are non-vocational elders. And that's why we call them lay elders. They're not employed by the, by the church. They're not eldering full-time at the church. But that's eight men who are in positions of spiritual influence and who are doing the bulk of the teaching here in the ministry. What's also unique about this season, however, is that we now have men training for ministry. In fact, we're about ready to have a formal training center uh, in, our, in our church as of the fall. And as those men develop their gifting and character, they're going to take on more and more spiritual influence in the body as well. And so all that to say, the more pastors and elders that are in the ministry, the more we are raising up individuals into these positions of spiritual influence the more we are in need to see how is the church supposed to think about those who minister the word of God. Now, with that said, this isn't limited to just the leadership level. Granted, that is the meaning of the passage. It is talking about leaders, but the significance of this passage can be applied broadly to anyone who's ministering the word of God. In fact, broadly to all of our relationships. These principles speak to the do's and don'ts of making human assessments in relationships and then treating one another accordingly. But returning to the meaning of the passage here with regard to ministers, you'll you'll notice in the church today there's, there's a couple of different tendencies on either end of the spectrum with how a church views ministers of the word of God. One would be to exalt them. To think too highly of them, to view them as something beyond mere servants and stewards, as Paul refers to them here. But the other tendency would be to condemn them, to be overly suspicious and critical of them. And Paul addresses that in our passage as well. Notice the the main idea here in chapter 4, verse 1. Let a man regard us in this manner. There's the point of the passage. Let every person in the church, here's how you must think, here's how you must consider those who are shepherds and teachers in the body of Christ. And so by way of outline, we're going to see two truths which promote a godly attitude toward ministers of the word. Two truths which promote a godly attitude toward ministers of the word. The first truth, God's standard is faithfulness. God's standard is faithfulness in order to think rightly about ministers, extend that out, in order to think rightly about any Christian, any one another context, we have to know the standard by which they are measured. And Paul gives it to us here in verses 1 and 2. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ, those who are subservient to another, those who have been called and commissioned by Christ to fulfill a particular task. And he adds a second description and stewards of the mysteries of God, a steward that is one who's been entrusted with managing what belongs to another. And in this case, the mysteries of God, that's a common way that Paul refers to gospel truths extending out to really all truth in the Bible. So here in verse 1, these two descriptors, servants and stewards, we can get a pretty accurate picture of what Paul's emphasizing. Ministers are not their own. They are under the authority and commission of another. Notice those possessives there. Servants of Christ. Stewards of the mysteries of God. And based on that, what is the standard of evaluation? Notice verse 2. In this case, moreover, it is required of students, of stewards that one be found trustworthy. That's the New Testament word for faithfulness. You'll see that translated in other passages that way. That's the standard: faithfulness. So what does it mean to be faithful? What's that word mean? To be steady and trustworthy in their commitment to carry out the duty to which they've been called. But that raises another question for us to highlight: faithful to whom? Faithful to whom? Well, notice the possessive again. Servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God, it is clear. Faithful to their divine master. That means that they're not to be measured by standards of anyone other than their master. Worldly or human notions of success, popularity, numerical growth, a particular set of gifts, a certain personality. No, those are all Corinthian measuring rods, not God's measuring rod. This rather straightforward truth, however, is not easy to live out, and that's evidenced by the fact that in greater evangelicalism, most ministries and ministers are evaluated by standards other than this, what Paul says here. I remember hearing a statement several years ago. It shocked me when I first heard it. I was in seminary at the time, And little did I know, I would go on to hear a version of this statement over and over in in ministry as the years would go by. But the original statement I heard was by a lady who was overhearing a conversation a friend and I were having at a restaurant. Our booths were backed up to one another. She was eavesdropping on our conversation, and she could tell that we were at least professing Christians associated with the church in some way. So she came over to our table, introduced herself, and Asked us, what ministry you're a part of? Eventually, we got around to that question. What ministry do you guys attend? And I told her the name of the ministry I was attending at that time. And that's when the the shocking statement came out. She said something like this. Oh, yeah, I visited there for a while. Uh, They preach the word of God. It appears to be a biblical ministry, but it's not for me. I didn't like it. And then she went on and on detailing all the things that were wrong about the ministry. And what they all had in common, none of them had anything to do with God's standard, Scripture. And what was so dangerous and shocking about it is that a person, when they're talking like that, they don't realize their own words are condemning them. Their own words are indicting them. You're acknowledging biblical fidelity. That's not a sufficient reason. It has to pass my scrutiny. In other words, God approves of it, but I don't. It may pass divine scrutiny, but not the one that really matters, human scrutiny. Unfortunately, this also happens in the evaluation of preaching today, and I don't mean pragmatic evangelicalism out there where, the, where we are making biblical evaluations of doctrinal concerns, philosophy of ministry concerns. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about ministries where the Word of God is being preached, but it's being evaluated in the realm of human opinion. Now, again, I can't do this without being self-serving, so just think of other preachers, not me. Um, it, it is such a part of our evangelical culture, isn't it, to, to raise ourselves above the preaching event, above the Word of God, and act as though there's a chapter and verse that says you need to be critics. You have to be evaluators. You, gotta, you, you have to give your, your opinion about what's happening, as I've heard it put memorably, if you were to eavesdrop on the average Sunday dinner in any town in America, you would find that they're having roast pastor as the main <laughs> course. And, and what could happen at that dinner is uh, we can tend to interact with a sermon the way we interact about a movie or anything else in the culture. You know, when, when someone says, I went and saw this movie the other day, what do we say to them if we're someone that likes movies? We we might say, Was it good? Was it good? What do we mean by that? Is it worth my time and money (laughs) to go see? That's what we mean. Well, sometimes we evaluate preaching the same way. And we might go around to each other after a sermon and say, Was it good? And I'm not sure what we mean by that. Was it good? Was it faithful? Was it clear? Was the author's intent clearly communicated? Did the preacher demonstrate a commitment to the authority, the clarity, the sufficiency of Scripture? If that's what we mean by good, great. Those are are biblical questions to ask. But sometimes that's not what we mean by is it good, and it's rather a Corinthian measuring rod, a, a, a measuring rod of human opinion. Sometimes what you hear is language like this, well, he's not authentic enough, he's not passionate enough, too much energy, too little energy. Too many stories, not enough stories. Message is too long, message is too short. Cries too much, never cries. He says what is right, but his tone is off. All, all of these, <laughs> these human opinions that we evaluate preaching by. And I want to I give you a couple of quotes that I find very helpful in getting at what can be behind this tendency that is alive and well in the church today when it comes to evaluating preaching. And just to give it some good balance, we'll do one from a dead pastor and one from a living pastor. The first one from John Newton, 18th century pastor and hymn writer. He writes this. There are hearers who make themselves and not scripture the standard of their judgment. They attend not so much to be instructed, but as to pass their sentence. To them, the pulpit is a bar at which the minister stands to take his trial before them, a bar at which few escape censure from judges at once so severe and inconsistent. These censors are not all of a mind and perhaps agree in nothing so much as in the opinion they have of their own wisdom. Now, let me give you one more from a living pastor, and then we'll tie them together. Author and pastor Paul Shirley, in his book, Expository Sanctification, has these very helpful insights for us. He's talking about the difference between sitting under expository preaching and the level of submission that that requires versus one's own private Bible reading. And I thought it was very helpful how he put it. He writes this, When you read on your own, you have the freedom to start and stop whenever you want. You can read whatever text you want. You can go as deep or as shallow as you want. In other words, it's possible to place yourself in a position of authority When you're reading your Bible. When you're listening to someone else preach, however, you're in a place of submission. The service time runs on a schedule that's not centered around you. The text of scripture is not chosen by you. And how the passage is handled and applied is not determined by you. Additionally, you're surrounded by fellow Christians who will hold you accountable for what you mutually learned from God's word. Now, I love Both of those from Newton and and Paul Shirley because I think it gets to the heart of what's behind this tendency today. Self-will. I want to be an authority. I want to control the text and my critical spirit is the evidence that I've placed myself above it and now it stands on trial before my evaluation. Author James Denny writes this, the natural man loves to find fault. It gives him at the cheapest rate the comfortable feeling of superiority that's not behind every criticism but that's behind many that's behind many notice verse 2 again it is required that stewards be found trustworthy faithful that's got to be etched in the forefront of our minds when we are evaluating one another in the body in whatever context it may be what is faithfulness when it comes to ministry Well, I'll just borrow the title of Dr. George Zemmick's book, Doing the Lord's Work the Lord's Way. Doing the Lord's Work in the Way He Has Called and Prescribed Us to Do It. I also think Paul's words to the Romans are relevant here. Romans 14.4, I'll just read it for you. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. See, ministers and all believers for that matter, we are what? We are servants of God. Servants of God. Stewards of God's truth. And we must evaluate one another based on that standard, not our own. One author put it so well, the congregation should view its leaders as servants but it must never view itself as the master. This is the first truth promoting a godly attitude toward ministers of the word. God's standard is faithfulness. That moves us to the second truth, verses 3 to 5. Human scrutiny is finite. Human scrutiny is finite. That is to say, human assessment is subject to severe limitations. Notice verse 3. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. Now, this is ripe for misunderstanding. So we've got to clarify what Paul does and doesn't mean here. What is the nature of this examination? Is Paul saying, never think about, it doesn't matter, there's no evaluations. You don't make any assessments at all. No, that's not at all what he's saying. This is the same word and the idea that he spoke about back in chapter 2. So turn back there. Chapter 2, verse 15. Let's notice what this actual examination is that he's talking about. Chapter 2, 15. But he who is spiritual, and now here's the same word, examines, maybe your version has appraises, judges. He who is spiritual appraises all things, and yet he himself is appraised by no one. In context, Paul's saying there is human beings in their own wisdom, apart from the Spirit of God and the Word of God, they can't give an accurate appraisal and accurate examination. That's verse 14. The natural man. That's why he's unwilling and unable to accept the truth. He makes a wrong appraisal about it. So what Paul's saying here is the spiritual one, he himself is appraised by no one. What's he saying there? No one can come along and look at Paul or any minister and render a decisive verdict about his ministry or to say, you're more valuable than Apollos, or Apollos is more valuable than, than you, as they were doing in Corinth. He's using the language of, of appraisal, and I think that's a helpful way to think about it. And we use language of appraisal today. We use it all the time in, in real estate. It reminded me of when we sold our home a few years ago. There was a potential buyer who came, came to the home and made his own unsolicited, uh, unofficial appraisal evaluation of the home's worth. And then he proceeded to lecture our real estate agent about how we had listed it too high and how we're not going to get any full price offers and his offer was the best we're going to get. Well, my response was basically identical to verse 3 it's a very insignificant thing your appraisal <laughs> that you're making of our of our home a potential buyer cannot come with any degree of objectivity without self-interest and bias and make an appraisal on the home he's going to buy and make that say that's the official one that's the appraisal it can't be objective furthermore he didn't gather all the data you didn't do an inspection it's limited But it works the other way as well. I, as the homeowner, I can't give the decisive appraisal because I'll operate in self-interest and I haven't done the homework to know all all the data. So it works both ways. That's the type of appraisal Paul's talking about. That's the examination he's talking about. He's talking about the church making an appraisal about his ministry thinking that it's completely objective and they have all the comprehensive knowledge and they can examine his heart motives and they know why he's doing certain things. That's what he's talking about. Notice, notice again, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. That's the key, human. It's merely human apart from the word of God. It's human opinion. He's not saying as believers, we don't exercise discernment and evaluate ministries and preaching biblically. He's not saying that. In many places in the New Testament, what does Paul warn against? False teachers. Stay away from people like that. Repent Or rebuke this person if they're doing that. Evaluate men and their gifting and their character to see if they should be in ministry. He's telling the church to make evaluations all over the place in the New Testament. That's not what he's talking about here. This is human opinion. Any human court. What is a human opinion? How do we define that? It is a belief a judgment that rests on grounds insufficient to produce complete certainty. That's an opinion. And there are two courts of human opinion represented here. As one commentator put it, your critics and your conscience. Your critics and your conscience. The court of public opinion and the court of personal opinion. And when it comes to the court of public opinion, he's saying here in verse 3, that's the least significant verdict on my ministry that appraisal is the least significant to me and here's what that means criticism from man doesn't necessarily translate to criticism from god and the opposite's true as well praise from god or praise from man doesn't necessarily translate to praise and commendation from god a minister should not be devastated or crippled by human criticism nor should he be puffed up by human praise because that is not the ultimate appraisal, the ultimate examination. I think we'd be wise to pause and consider our own response, in light of what Paul says here, our own response when we are criticized by fellow man in the realm of human opinion. In other words, this isn't someone coming saying, I'm concerned about your speech or your actions in light of this passage. We should be concerned about that. No, this is someone coming and just giving human criticism. In my opinion, you're this. Why? Because that's just how I feel. Do we respond in our heart in that moment like Paul does right here? It's a very small thing. It's, It's utterly insignificant that I should be examined by your human opinion. I bring that up because oftentimes don't we find that our response is the opposite of that? And we're devastated by criticism, even though it's just someone's opinion? We're just devastated by it? And in that case, is is that not a sign that we're living for the approval of a human master rather than a divine master when the words of people devastate us more than God's opinion of us? Let me show you an example of what this looks like so that we have the right idea in mind here. The Corinthians did this very thing to Paul. That's, in fact, why he's bringing this up. The Corinthians saw Paul. They evaluated his actions. They then assigned motives to Paul. And they then treated him in light of those conclusions. Let's look at how they did this. Look at 1 Corinthians 9, verse 3. He even uses the same language here. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 3. My defense to those who, and there's our word, examine, appraise, judge me. My defense is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of, our, of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock. What is going on here? Why is he defending himself with these statements? Well, all of chapter 9 in 1 Corinthians is written to correct the flawed assessment that they made of him. They were baffled and bothered. They were offended that when Paul came into town initially in Corinth, Acts chapter 18, when he, he came in to minister the gospel to them, he didn't accept financial support. He, di- he didn't charge for his message. Why would they be offended by that? Why would they be confused by that? Because of the culture. The, the Corinthians were obsessed with professional lecturers, sophists, orators, who would come into town and they would, they would sign up, they would sell tickets to speak, and they were to put on a show with their brilliant intellect and rhetoric and this, this is the culture, and, and they would stay with the wealthy, and the wealthy would wine and dine them, so to speak, and they would find the, the wealthy, they would use that to control them and get favors, and, and back and forth, it would create this relational debt, and that is why, by the way, the Corinthians had these personality cults in their church, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos because that's what they did with these secular sophists. They would identify with them and create these little followings with certain speakers. All right, so these professional speakers would travel from city to city. They would charge a fee to be heard. And just like professionalism in our day, your worth, your value, your your fame is connected to how much can you charge for your tickets and can you sell out the venues? So imagine Paul coming into that type of environment. That's what the Corinthians loved. That's what they lived in. Paul comes in and he says, okay, I'm going to preach in this unappealing message, Christ and him crucified, and I'm going to preach in an unprofessional manner. I'm not going to use these language techniques that these professionals use to manipulate the audience. So Paul comes in and frankly, he's just unimpressive. Unimpressive. How are the Corinthians going to interpret that? You're an amateur. You got nothing. Your message is worthless. You can't even sell out the venue. You can't even get people to come if it's free. Look at you. Furthermore, he wouldn't stay with the socially elite. He stayed with tent makers. He stayed with Priscilla and Aquila. The, 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 they would have been considered low lifes in society. I'm not going to stay in the socially elite homes because they're going to use it to manipulate and try to control and try to follow me. Well, What did the Corinthians conclude? He's doing that. That must mean he's not gifted. His message is not worth anything. He's not a professional. He's not worth listening to. Look at uh, chapter 9, verse 8. I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Are we just going opinion versus opinion here, Corinthians? Is this Paul's opinion versus your opinion? No. In the following verses, he demonstrates from the law, and then reiterates it with more, I have a right to accept support. I have a right to, be, to, to, uh, to accept financial support for my gospel ministry. Verse 12, nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. So, Why didn't he use the right? He didn't want them to confuse him with the professional sophists. Said I, am not one of them, so I'm going to distinguish myself from them. Even though I have the right, I don't have to make tense Why I'm here, I have the right to get support. How did they interpret that? You don't charge because you can't. You're worthless. Look at Second Corinthians ten ten. Look at the reputation that they started to have of Paul. Second Corinthians ten verse ten. <clears throat> For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence unimpressive and his speech contemptible as they compared him with the professionals. Look at this guy. There's nothing impressive about him. Why was that? Because Paul was trusting in his content, not his delivery, in his appearance. This made the Corinthians vulnerable to false teachers, false apostles who would come in and, and give them that cultural, scratch that cultural itch right where they had it. And that's what happened. Look at Second Corinthians 11, verse 5. Look who came in and started to take over the church and discredit Paul. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. He's referring to the false apostles who came in. But even if I'm unskilled in speech, I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we've made this evident to you all things. The word for unskilled there is layman. Paul's just ordinary. That's the reputation that the Corinthians had of Paul. There's that ordinary, unskilled guy. We want the guys that charge. We want the guys that use rhetoric. We'll take these apostles. And they were false teachers. Notice verse 7. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? Corinthians, you're treating me like I sinned against you. It became a criticism. You won't accept support. There's something wrong with you, Paul. But why was he doing it? Verse 8, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and I was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need, and in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. Verse 12, But what I am doing I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. And then he just goes for the jugular (laughs) Such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. What's he doing there? I'm going to keep my ministry free from your support. This wasn't his common practice. He accepted support from many other churches. With you, Corinthians, I'm going to keep it free from support to undermine these false apostles because you watch. Watch what happens when you stop supporting them. They'll leave town. They won't keep ministering to you, but I will even though I'm not accepting support. This is a great reminder of how Satan works. He loves to undermine the truth, undermine the ministry, undermine the power of the word of God. How? By undermining the credibility of the ministers. John Calvin writes this, This is the craftiness of Satan to draw away the hearts of men from ministers that instruction may gradually fall into contempt. That's what happened with the Corinthians. They had such a low view of Paul. Eventually, we're not even going to listen to anything you have to say. We'll, ta- we'll take these guys, these impressive guys, the guys that charge, the guys that will stay with the wealthy. And over time, the very apostle that was responsible for the existence of their church, Paul, the very apostle that was responsible for the majority of their conversions gets kicked out for the false apostles. Isn't that what happened with Llewellyn the Great in the opening illustration? Killed his dog Gellert because he had falsely assumed Gellert was guilty of something when in fact Gellert was acting with the utmost devotion and love. That's the Corinthians and Paul. So back to 1 Corinthians 4, I gave you that kind of lengthy cross-reference there so you can understand the type of appraisal, the type of judgment that, that Paul is talking about here. That is why mere human judgment is of little value and we start connecting the dots in the realm of motives and intentions. But what about the man himself? What about the minister himself? We now move from critics to conscience. Paul says at the end of verse 3, in fact, I don't even examine myself. Now again, to clarify, he's not talking about the healthy Commanded examination that all believers are to be doing in their own lives. He even tells the same church, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Test yourselves. That's a different word, different concept altogether. What Paul's talking about here is my own personal opinion how I feel about my ministry, how I think it's going, what I think my motives are. That's irrelevant. I don't draw any decisive verdict about that in my life but it doesn't mean that he's not looking verse four for i'm conscious of nothing against myself i do evaluate i do consider why i'm doing what i'm doing i do look at my ministry and my life and i'm not conscious of anything against myself so i maintain a clean conscience but i'm not by this acquitted that's not the final say that's not the ultimate verdict That means there's no minister that can say, well, my conscience is clean, therefore the Lord approves of my ministry. The Lord automatically validates everything. It means my motives are pure. No minister can say that and know that he's for sure telling the truth. Why? The one who examines me is the Lord. God's verdict is the one that is definitive. God's opinion of my ministry is all that matters. This language should help us when we're ministering to one another. Again, maybe it's parenting, maybe it's marriage, maybe it's just various relationships that we have. But have you noticed that we use some language sometimes? It's not helpful, to put it mildly. And we start to uh, act as if we are the Lord and we can see right into a person's heart that we're talking to. You said this, but you meant this. Wow. We can see inside the heart. You looked at me this way, and based on that, here's what's true. You didn't reach out, therefore you don't love me. The common denominator in these assessments is, all right, I made an observation, I attached some sort of moral explanation, and now you're guilty. This is true of you. What does Jeremiah 17, 9 say? The heart can't be understood by anyone, including the person themselves, only the Lord searches the heart, and knows those things. But sometimes we can operate in relationships as if, I've got clarity, I know you said that, but I know what you meant. I've got clarity about your motives. If both critics and conscience can't render a decisive verdict, who can? The Lord. End of verse 4. But the one who examines me is the Lord. That's the only appraisal that counts. Now, Here's how we would abuse this passage or misunderstand it. Somebody would come along and say, all right, I guess it doesn't matter what I say or what I do because only God knows my heart. Only he can judge me. And it becomes a license for a person to treat their words and actions as irrelevant. Don't, don't pay any attention to my words. Don't pay any attention to my life because you don't know my heart. Only the Lord knows my heart. That's the farthest thing from Paul's mind in this passage. This passage is talking about where there isn't the objectivity of evaluating speech or one's life, and we're just making those human connections. You can't go to Scripture to demonstrate one way or another. In those cases, we know the Lord is the one who will come and give the final examination. But that still doesn't answer the question of what we do with our fears. What do we do with our suspicions, our criticisms? that don't rise above this level of human opinion. What do we do? Verse 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. What do we do with those things? They must be tempered. They must be tempered by the fact that any present judgment is premature, incomplete, and flawed like the Corinthians and Paul it's an imperative stop passing judgment he's not saying stop discernment stop evaluating biblically he's saying stop rendering decisive verdicts stop connecting those dots in your in your mind and saying because i observe this therefore i know what's really going on stop stop making appraisals what do you do instead wait 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 until the Lord comes because he can do what no human being can do and what no congregation can do. He brings a spotlight and he shines it in an area that is inaccessible to human beings, the motives of men's hearts, the purposes of hearts. Again, obviously demonstrating why we as human beings can't render these final appraisals, these final judgments. We don't have the clarity. We don't have access to that. I think the beginning of verse 5 here gives us insight into why we might rush to judge, why we are critical, why we are prone to accept our mere human assessments. It is unbelief in the Lord's timing. Could be one reason. We don't like to wait. Very difficult for human beings to do, especially if we have suspicious critical tendencies. We don't want to wait. It's also unbelief in the Lord's character. We think, I've got to take matters into my own hands because the Lord isn't keeping track. He's got a blind spot when it comes to watching my life or this area, whatever the areas I'm concerned about. In fact, sometimes our rush to judge and make assessments could be due to a very high view of self like a Messiah complex where we operate as if we are the Savior and Lord of the church. It's our job to discern motives and figure out what's really going on. In fact, you've probably noticed today that there are entire ministries Devoted to restoring and protecting the church. Get the perspective of a few individuals that were involved. Make a few assumptions why a church operated the way it did. And just start publishing it as fact. It's a blatant violation of verse 5. When you don't have biblical clarity. When a matter has not been established on the basis of, what did Jesus say? Two or three witnesses. Where? In the context of the local church. Matthew 18, when we don't have that clarity, verse 5, do not go on passing judgment before the time. Another reason we might be vulnerable to these flawed human assessments is because it gets the spotlight off of what's going on with us. Author Joel Beakey writes this, fault finding may divert attention from guilty consciences, broken marriages, dire financial situations, Fault finding may feed an autonomous dislike for the God-given authority of leadership. Fault finding may be how we cope with our own insecurities and fears. Isn't that so true of us as sinners? It is so much easier to be preoccupied with others than, our, than ourselves. I love how verse 5 ends, and we're almost out of time here. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. That is not how I expected the passage to end. But notice, it's not warning. It's not a passage of dread. We know that in the judgment seat for believers, things are going to burn up. Things that we did with impure motives, things that we thought we were doing for the Lord were really for self, and even things that we thought were insignificant that weren't worth anything, the Lord's like, no, 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 that was worth a lot. I was working right there. You didn't recognize it. We know that's true, But Paul ends here on an encouraging note. Each man's praise will come to him from God. And I think this statement speaks to those who are merciless in their human judgments. In other words, the tendency that we can often be a stricter judge of one another than God is. I was reminded of a passage in the Old Testament where David orders the census. You remember that passage? Let's turn back there. We're going to end back in 1 Chronicles 21. I find it fascinating to see what what David does here. 1 Chronicles 21, verse 7. So you remember that the census David orders was not commanded by the Lord. Uh, We aren't given the motive, but... Many believe it was to gratify his pride and the great strength of his army, to see how many numbers he had, maybe to find security and comfort in the numbers that he had. But in either case, we know, verse 7, God was displeased with this thing. So he struck Israel. David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. The Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and speak to David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I will do to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, take for yourself either three years of famine or three months to be swept away before your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord. Even pestilence in the land and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now, therefore, consider what answer I shall return to him who sent me. David said to Gad, Now, if you weren't reading ahead, which one of those would you choose? Look at David's response. I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord. For his mercies are very great. But don't let me fall into the hand of the Lord of man wow i'll take the lord over man because with the lord at least i can count on mercy (laughs) that's what david's saying there just a helpful reminder that it should temper how we interact with one another In, in all the various contexts in which this can be applied our mercy should not only match the lord's mercy toward us but should really be overflowing it should be higher Because we're fellow sinners. We know what it feels like to be weak and fail. So two truths ensuring a proper attitude toward ministers of the word, and by extension, all of us, all believers. God's standard is faithfulness. Ours is never to be more or less than that. And human scrutiny is finite. We must have a healthy suspicion of our mere human assessments. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for showing us our limitations. Thank you for showing us the danger of premature, hasty assessments. And we ask that you would give us hearts that would be patient and trusting, trusting in your promises, your character, your assessment, knowing that it is comprehensive and infallible. Cause us to be suspicious of our own understanding and our own wisdom but to cling to your truth, to acknowledge you in all of our ways, fearing you and you alone. It's in Christ's name we ask. Amen.